Well, go back with me, if you will, to uh, Romans chapter 7. This is kind of the, um, this kind of illustrates, or tonight kind of illustrates the problem. The problem is, um, in, in a Bible study like this, where you never have the same audience, the audience is different every week, and because the audience is different and uh, the, the, the material is so challenging, and then add to that the, uh, the uh, inability of the, of the teacher to make it clear enough, the, the comprehension level just seems to continue to go down the longer the, the study goes. So you miss a chunk, and therefore you're, you're out of the, um, the flow of the text, et cetera. So what, I, what, I've, what I'm seeking to do is to um, uh, include something each week that would um, that would be uh, um, what's the word removable that is from the whole and would be applicable um, in without having heard what has gone before or what will come after. So that's what we're going to try to do. Um, we have. Um, bogged down in a, in a wonderful way, at least in my opinion, over verse 4. And uh, we're going to bog down a little bit more with it uh, tonight and then maybe, um, maybe finish it up tonight, uh, verse 4. Um, what I was suggesting last week is that this is the gospel in a nutshell. It is the, uh, this wonderful synopsis of a lot of different uh, truth. And uh, it describes... And it, one of the things that it does is describes the the radical change that every believer has undergone. Now, and perhaps if you haven't seen it, what I'm referring to is the fact that this new relationship is described uh, can be described only with language of uh, death and rising. That is, you, you see both of those mentioned in in verse four. That the relationship that we now enjoy with the Lord Jesus is of such um, um, profundity that the only words that would adequately represent it are the words that there, or the description that there has been a death and a rising. That is uh, to describe this this wonderful change that has been wrought in the people of God. It's a it's a death and it's a rising. No more profound a change has ever been experienced by any man. Than, the, than the, the change that is experienced by those who are converted to Christ. Now, I, I said that last week, and then I, what I tried to do is then give you some, um, uh, some tests of life, we'll call them. I mentioned things like, um, uh, is worship something that really you enjoy? Uh, uh, do you see any fruit? Not, not do I see it, but do you see it? And, and then went on to say, uh, okay, if those marks are uh, not... Um, apparent to you, then how is it that anyone would become a Christian? This is kind of where we stopped last night. And what I mentioned, look at verse 4 back again with me. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ. Whatever it is that is required of one to become a Christian, it involves something that happened to the body of Christ. That is, his body, not the body of the church. But um, whatever it is that is uh, required, it involves, it centers upon, it orbits around something that took place 
in the body of Christ. Uh, how is it that Christ saves anyone? It is something that took place in his body. And that, of course, uh, brings us to the cross of Christ, which is where we can start anew tonight. What is exactly, what is it that exactly takes place on the cross? Where verse 4 tells us, that is, that Christ has become dead to the law. Well, Jimmy, I don't see that in the text. Well, let me just show you where I think I'm, I'm where I think you should look. Look at the text again. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law. The, the little word also. You also have become dead to the law. So if it's also happened to you, to whom did it happen? It happened to Christ. That is, so this thing that is taking place in the, in the body of Christ on the cross is summarized in these words that he became dead because of the law. And you also became dead uh, to the law. His death was by no means an accident. In fact, Paul says in another place in Galatians chapter 4 that he was born under the law. Uh, and of course, that has real import when it comes to um, saving any of us, that he was born under that law because that law cannot go unfulfilled, as if God winks at, uh, at it or winks it away. Gang, the, the Old Testament says that the soul that sins shall surely die. Is that an idle threat? Well, thus, we, we come upon the problem, and the problem is that we have sinned. So, what is it that is the remedy to that problem? Well, it's remedied in the body of Christ on the cross. Now, there's a couple of things that take place there, but they're so inextricably joined, it's hard to separate them. But we're gonna, I'm going to try. Um, what is it that is taking place on the cross? Actually, two things. Actually, one of them comes prior to the cross, but is involved in the cross. Guys, um, Christ is born under law and honors the law in every way and in every detail so that the law is then fulfilled. You've heard me say this a lot. I love to say it. He has thus lived the life that I should have lived. The law has been completely honored, completely fulfilled, down to its very jot and tittle, um, and thus he has lived the life that I should have lived, and thus the law is fulfilled for me by my representative. That's the first thing that takes place, and of course that takes place, living the life takes place prior to the cross, but it culminates in the cross because of the second thing that's taking place there. What about my guilt? Okay, the law is fulfilled. The law is honored. The law is reconciled. But what about my guilt? What about my open violations of the law? Well, Peter makes a, a very interesting statement in uh, 1 Peter 2, verse 24. He, he's referring to Christ, of course, who says, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. There's that body again. That's what drew me to it. Who himself bore our sins in his own body. So how does one become, how does anyone become a Christian? It has something to do with that body. And that body is the thing that bears 
um, our sin, it, uh, uh, that we having died, who himself bore our sins in his own body, that we having died to sins. So guys, what is, what is taking place on the cross? A couple of things. The law is being fulfilled and my sin is being paid for. The law had to be honored, and it was. God didn't wink at it and thus make it go away. The law is fulfilled. He lived the life that I should have lived and thus died the death that I should have died. So um, when I begin to discuss what it means to become a, a child of God, it all is wrapped up in his body, in what he did and how he died. Now, that done, I then, uh, or Christians, are then married to another. Back to verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law. That's what happened. Through the body that you may be married to another. And that, of course, is we're, we're back to that marriage business. You'll notice that the text doesn't say that you are married to the Lord Jesus Christ, as you might expect it to say. But it says that you may be married to another to him who was raised from the dead. Uh, his resurrection is an essential part of, of, our, of, of his provision for our salvation. Now, why is that? Why is the resurrection an essential part? Well, um, there's an, another interesting statement uh, in Acts 17. The, the, the resurrection is, is the final proof that that Jesus is the man. This is what's said in Acts 17. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. That is, God has granted assurance that this is the right man through whom he will um, uh, save his people and he has proved that he is the right man through raising him from the dead. So uh, Paul makes reference to the essentiality of that event, that is, of the resurrection, uh, as, a, as a proof that this is, this is the one that he has ordained by which any of us can be, um, can be reconciled to God. Now, for us to have this new relationship that is described by marriage, that is metaphor, uh, it is, the, the metaphor is that of marriage. For us to have any of this new, for any of us to have this new relationship, something had to happen to him. We've just mentioned that. But something has to happen to us as well. And that something happened to us at the cross. What happened to Christ there, back to that little word also, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ. Um, he has died to the law and thus to sin, and thus so did we. Now, gang, this is all under this glorious heading of, of, this, of what I consider to be the central doctrine of the New Testament, that is being united to Christ. Um, I, I want to say that the, that the message that I want to be known for when I die is that I am united to Christ. The good news of the gospel is not that you're not going to go to hell. The good news of the gospel is that you are married to Christ, that you are in union with Christ, and the Bible, the New Testament, is replete 
with, with, with words that, that allude to that union. Um, you are buried with Christ. You are raised with Christ. You are in Christ. You are resurrected with Christ. You are, um, um, uh, you have died. All those words refer to the same thing. That I am in a union with Christ. That is, all that Christ accomplishes at Calvary is done on my behalf. I am, I am married to another husband, thus, and am so entirely outside of the jurisdiction of law. Now, if I could take one of those asides, which I hope will be ap- applicable for you guys. Um, I, am, I am married to Christ, in union with Christ, and thus I am so outside of the purview and the jurisdiction of law. I'm suggesting that you must understand that in some measure, to some degree, or you will never know the sweet fruit, the sweet enjoyments of assurance and liberty. Uh, I, I'm saying that that union with Christ is, is, or my awareness of my union with Christ is essential for my enjoyment of, of anything that resembles assurance. Guys, um, I am, I am in a, a relationship of the deepest intimacy. A permanent relationship of the deepest of intimacy with Jesus Christ. All this language, again, depicting and describing and explaining my union. I, now, that I was brought into union with Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit, but the event that accomplished it was what took place on, uh, uh, on the cross. He is, something happened to him, but something also happened to me. I, I was brought into death uh, to the law because he was brought into death in the law. And guys, so for us to fear the law um, is, is really being disloyal to my new husband because that, that husband is Dead, um, and it, and it means to, to to fear the law as if it's somehow going to follow me into heaven and condemn me, is to fear something that doesn't exist. It's been slain. It is dead. It is no longer there. My ex-husband is gone. I do not need to fear my ex-husband. By the way, I, I did I did tell I didn't say this, but I did tell this in the pulpit uh, several weeks back. Weeks ago, the story about Abigail and Nabal. Remember Nabal? His name means fool. And um, he was married to Abigail, and David was was protecting his flocks out in the countryside. And so David decided he was going to go and ask if Nabal would feed his army. So he goes in to see Nabal, or he sends his representatives to see um, Nabal and asks for some provisions for his army. And Nabal laughs him to scorn and says, I'm not about to give you anything. Get out of here. So they go back to David, and David is very, very upset about all this. Um, And so he says, okay, everybody get your sword on. We're going to go take care of that fool, Nabal. Abigail, the, the, the wife of Nabal, hears of what her husband has done. 
Um, and so she says, oh, my goodness, we're in trouble. So she says, pack the mules, put all kinds of raisins and wine and everything on there. And um, I'm, go- I'm headed to David. And so she takes all these provisions to David, runs into David as he's on his way to slay Nabal. And, uh, and he's, David says to Abigail, it's a good thing you came because had you not come, I was going to wipe out everything that Nabal owned. And so David takes the provisions, goes back to the countryside, and, and is at peace. But uh, Abigail goes home, tells her husband, or her husband finds out what she has done. He has a heart attack and dies on the spot. Um, and David hears that Nabal is now dead, and he goes and marries his wife Abigail. Now, the point is, would, Nate, would, would Abigail... Possible? Why would she ever fear that dead husband again? I mean, if she would, if she would wake up in the middle of the night and screaming there next to David and and screaming, oh, I'm so afraid of. And David says, What are you afraid of, honey? And he says, I'm afraid of Nabal. And David says, Well, why are you afraid of him? He's dead. Well, that's the point, ladies and gentlemen. Why are you afraid of the law? Why does it still trouble you that you, and, and, and I, well, I think I know why it troubles you. I know what Satan does to us. He reminds us of our failings. He reminds us of our skeletons in the closet and keeps pointing us and goading us and, and troubles us. And therefore, all of this sweet assurance and enjoyment of my union with Christ evaporates. I'm saying that you must have this, this, Full appreciation that you are married to another if you are ever to enjoy the depths of assurance and liberty in Christ. Nabal is dead. He will trouble you no more. The law is dead. It will trouble you no more. You know, I thought it was interesting too that Nabal's name means fool. Abigail ended up uh, exchanging a fool for the king. She gets married to David the king. She was married to a fool. Now she's married to a king. Just like us. That, ladies and gentlemen, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm convinced, and the more I'm, you know, I, I told you this before, but I, I came into the real, uh, uh, just a fresh appreciation of it in, in Europe, and, and the, the longer I've been back, the Bible opens and closes with a wedding. It opens with the wedding and it closes with the wedding. The book starts with the wedding. It closes with the, 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 uh, the, the feast of the Lamb. The wedding feast of the Lamb in the book of Revelation. It opens with the wedding in Genesis 2. It closes with the wedding in Revelation 20. That's telling you something. That the book is about a wedding. It's about a marriage. That the relationship that we enjoy is not a relationship so much of a master to a slave, but a husband to a wife. It's not a relationship, by the way, I, I hate to say this because duty is a nice word. And I think it's been forgotten in many circles in the Christian church. Duty. You know, um, guys, if you have children, you need to work in the nursery. You know, you crank those things out. There's a, there's a bit of duty that's involved, you know. So it's not an ugly word, but, my, but the point I'm saying is, or the point I'm trying to make is, that is not the word... That, that the Bible wants us to take away in, as a description of our relationship to, to the Heavenly Father. 
Let me tell you something, ladies. Is that the only thing that makes you do nice things for your husband? Then you have a weak marriage. Is it only duty? Then the marriage is weak. Well, but, but that's the image of the New Testament. I'm not finished, ladies and gentlemen. It gets worse. Well, no, no. It gets better, but it gets, mm, makes me a little bit uncomfortable here. You want to see it? Let's go take a look at it. If you've got your Bibles open, you need to see this. Turn to Ephesians 5. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 5. Everybody knows this passage. There's two verses of Scripture that every pagan in the world knows. The first verse of Scripture that the pagan knows is, Judge not, lest ye be judged. He knows that one. The other one that he knows is, Wives, submit. <laughs> Those are the only two he knows. But he's, he's <clears throat> Now, but guys, in, in this context of wives and husbands, you look at verse 22 where wives submit, and then verse 25, husbands love your wives. Go on down with me to verse 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Here we go. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall become, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, I've said this to you before, guys, but I'm telling you, I can't get over it, and I don't want you to get over it. The two shall become one flesh. Does anybody need a felt graph for me to tell you what that means? Everybody here with me? Now read the next verse. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Here I was thinking that now, wives submit, husbands love your wives, etc., etc. You know, you leave your father, cleave to your wife, we're one flesh. We all know about that. And then the very next statement is, but I'm not talking about marriage. I'm talking about the church. That is wild, ladies and gentlemen. Do you know what you are? You're in one flesh with the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm telling you that is the bedrock. The bedrock of assurance and liberty in Christ. That I know that I am one flesh with Christ. I'm in a relationship of permanence and deepest intimacy. Now, by the way, if the only reason that you can find to obey is duty, do that. But you're missing out. Because the relationship is one of far more sweetness far more intimacy than that. Guys, to fear that the law is going to somehow trouble me later on is an insult to my husband. I mean, for, for, um, for Abigail to say, Oh, David, I'm so afraid of David. Oh. Well, honey, what do you think I am? Chopped liver? Do you think that I can't protect you from that fool? That's what we're doing. Do you not think that the Lord Jesus can protect you from the law? You know, we, we sing a song, the terrors of law and of God. The terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hired all my transgressions from you. Do you believe that? The terror of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood. 
hide all my transgressions from him. I don't need to fear Nabal anymore. He's not going to trouble me ever again. He's dead. That's the beauty, ladies and gentlemen. And I'll, I'll, let, me, let me go just a little bit further. Guys, in a very real sense, no Christian, no Christian ever has the right to be unhappy or miserable. What a reflection on your new husband. Oh, I married you. I remember when Susan and I moved to Fort Lauderdale, you know, um, um, she had never been away from Memphis. And I had this new job and a new car and a new apartment and a new, you know, South Florida, and I was hot. And, um, you know, I was working, and, and Susie would, was not. And she would, you know, just, she was, anyway, one night we, um, we were going to have a big night out, and so I took her out to this place called Pier 66. It's, it's A1A, right on the ocean. Maybe it was Pier A1A. I forget. Anyway, it was a pier. And, uh, you know, a little dancing, you know, in the night, you know, and, and a nice supper place. You know, the ocean's out there. You know, here's I'm a 22-year-old with my new wife and dancing on the ocean. And, and uh, we get home, and um, she begins to bawl. And I said, what's the matter with you? What's the matter with you? And she said, I'm so miserable. What? How could anyone be married to me and be miserable? <laughs> but tell me, my brother and sister in Christ, how many of you can be married to Christ and be miserable? It's an affront. It's an affront to the new husband. It's a reflection on his provision. It's a reflection upon his, on his strength and his might and his care and his love. It's a, it's a re- I mean, to go through life in misery or in happiness, I'm telling you, it doesn't, it doesn't sit well with the new, the new groom. Gang, this metaphor, this metaphor of, um, of being married to Christ, suggests sweeping changes. You know, I married Susie Betzelberger. She had never been out of Memphis. Uh, she married me, and within six weeks, we were in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, where we knew nobody. And uh, as I said, she's miserable. But as a result of marrying me, every aspect, every area of her life and mine was, was affected and it was changed by this new marriage. Can, can I live any way I want in this new marriage? Of course not. That's ludicrous. In fact, there is a very significant loss of freedom and independence when I entered that marriage. And it's love that makes that a joy. I get pleasure by giving pleasure. Does that sound familiar? That's the way it's supposed to be, ladies and gentlemen. I get pleasure because I bring joy to my husband. We make changes in our lives, adjustments. We, we begin to do different things and adopt different schedules and make different sacrifices to please this new spouse of mine. And if you aren't willing to do that, for heaven's sake, stay out of marriage. You know, these little couples come to me and they're... they're 20 years old and they want to get married and 
this, they really shouldn't do it. But, you know, um, um, and I think I've, I've told you this before that I, I have a friend by the name of George Gully. And George Gully, uh, he was heavily involved in the seminary at Reform Seminary. And he, he used to make this idle boast. Well, he used to make this boast. He said, I can, I can stand in registration line and I can tell you who is going to make it in the ministry and who's not going to make it in the ministry, just in the registration line. Yeah, that's pretty arrogant. Yeah, I don't know whether you could do it or not, but I, I've made an equally as arrogant of a statement. I can pick out the ones that are going to make it, and I can pick out the ones that ain't going to make it. I do a wedding, and I come home on occasion to my wife, and I say, they ain't got a chance. You say, well, why do you marry them? It's not my job to figure out who's supposed to be married to who. I mean, I, if they're Christians, they say they're in love. Okay. <laughs> Let's go get this over with. <laughs> you ain't got, got a snowball's chance, in my opinion. But, but I always say, you know, and they're, thinking, you know, they're just thinking there's no love that's ever existed like their love. None. Um, anyway. I always say this to them. I say, let me tell you something. Here's the couples that can make it. You give me a man and a wife, uh, a man and a woman, who want to die to self, and they can make it. Just, any, just, just give me somebody that wants to say no to their flesh in the interest of another person, and they can make it. Why do we? Why would we? think any differently about this marriage to Christ. You want to know the ones that are going to make it? I'll tell you the ones that are going to make it. Just show me somebody that's willing to make changes to bring about the pleasure of the new bride, of the new bridegroom. Guys, we are married to Christ. Um, Now, I want to come back. We'll finish this up next week, but I do want you to see this um, before we quit. Notice the goal and the purpose of this new marriage to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. That's the purpose of the new marriage, folks. That you and I enjoy ourselves. That you and I find... Let me tell you something. It ain't ain't much of a bride who gets married for what she can get out of her husband. You know, somebody says, well, I'm going to marry him because uh, I'll get some security and, um, you know, I won't have to work anymore and, uh, you know, I can move into a nicer neighborhood. I ain't much of a bride, is it? Now, ladies and gentlemen, the bride exists to bring pleasure to the husband. That is, we exist to bring fruit, to bear fruit to God. Guys, um, this 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 idea that um, that somehow we can separate justification from our sanctification. I, I don't see how you can possibly come to that conclusion. The whole intent and purpose of this new marriage is that I bring forth fruit to God. It's this it's the central object of my salvation. It, it's it's it has in view a life lived to God's glory. That's why you're in this thing. To get pleasure as you bring pleasure.
happiness is a byproduct, ladies and gentlemen. It's a byproduct of bringing glory to your new husband. Happiness is a byproduct of bearing fruit to God. And, I, and, I, and I'm sure some of the fruit at times appears a little bit small and a little bit weak and paltry. Yes, it does. In all of us. But that doesn't change the fact. You and I exist in this new relationship so that we can bear fruit. By the way, do you, do you get the imagery here? Bear fruit? Make babies? Have children? But the children in view here, the fruit in view here, is the, is the, is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The, the, the fruit of holiness. Don't even dream of thinking that my sanctification is divorced from my justification. I am something happened to him and at the same time it happened to me and as a result I'm in union with him and the goal of that whole relationship is to bear fruit. That's simple. <laughs> um, and oh, 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 so terribly profound. Let's quit. Our Father, I do pray that your people might be um, further and better instructed as to the beauty of the relationship that you um, have authored in your people, that we might live uh, to your enjoyment, that we might live to your, your, your glory, and that we might find the greatest sense of safety and security in knowing that the law is dead and that our husband has protected us that our husband's obedience and blood is hiding all of our transgressions from your view. We are free, free to bear fruit of holiness unto our new, our new spouse. Uh, give us the great joy of seeing pleasure on your face. Pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thanks and good night.